The following podcast is made in partnership with Zinc VC. Oceans are essential to life on Earth. They cover more than 70% of the planet's surface, regulate its climate and supply much of its oxygen. The oceans are also home to an extraordinary variety of life. Much of this life is essential to sustain people's livelihoods and ensure food security as millions rely on fish as their primary source of protein. To continue to fish sustainably requires adopting new ways of fishing. However, the fishing industry and governments have found it difficult to agree how best to manage changing fish stocks, particularly if fish are moving across international boundaries or where catches need to be significantly reduced. In episode eight, I'm speaking to fishing warrior Antoinette Vermeule, co-founder of the Gallifrey Foundation and She Changes Climate. Antoinette is a passionate activist and advocate for the ocean. Her work has taken her upstream to the sources of plastic and chemical pollution, social injustice and human health impacts, as well as downstream to waste solutions that may or may not be ideal. Her vision is that we keep refining our solutions to ensure they cause no harm to any living creature and leave a just and healthy legacy for all that follow. And if she doesn't see a solution, she gets on with creating one. Welcome, Antoinette. Hi, Carla. Thanks so much for having me on on this podcast. I I feel very honoured to be here amongst all your illustrious previous guests that you've had. Well, you are a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful person that I have in my life, so I'm more than happy to have you here. For all our listeners, Antoinette, we know each other because you're both a member of the Warrior Women Network and because we're on the steering committee of She Changes Climate, which you co-founded. Do you want to talk a little bit about that work that we're doing there? Uh, yes. Well, very briefly, um, What ha- again, I, I get pissed off at night when I'm thinking about something that annoys me and no one's doing anything about it. So about uh, two years ago, the uh, COP26 high-level team um, of the UK who were hosting it were announced all male. And because of my work in the oceans, I was thinking about this and realizing, hang on a second, this is annoying enough. You know, it's just just wrong. But this is going to trickle down to everyone who's working in the environment, because if we don't have optimized policies, our work is going to be a lot less effective at a time when we need everything to be as effective as it possibly can be. I recently as part of She Changes Climate, went up to COP26 at Glasgow. And it was truly one of the most amazing days that I've ever been a part of. In the blue area, you had all of the, the main dignitaries from countries all over the world. And outside of the main arena, you had some of the world's leaders in climate action who were all women and self-identifying women. And it really felt to me that the real COP26 was happening there. So thank you so much for all of the work you're driving. You're also the co-founder of the Gallifrey Foundation based out of, um, I think it's Switzerland? Correct, yes. And um, the Gallifrey Foundation identifies collaborative opportunities to tackle ocean conservation issues. Why is ocean conservation so important? Um, okay, so this is <laughs> this is uh, the big question. Why is ocean conservation so important? Um, just a few facts and figures. Seventy uh, percent of the planet is covered in ocean. Um, we were born. We came from the ocean. Uh, the ocean provides fifty percent of our oxygen. Um, Our resources, our culture, our art, our poetry come from the ocean as well. So there's a lot that is there, but I think the the biggest thing is that we have to understand as many of us who look around in nature is some, some of us really need to speak up for those who cannot defend themselves. And at the moment, the ocean is a big giant cage and there's nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, and everything is being picked out. It's interesting that image that you portrayed then of kind of a helpless entity. 
do you feel quite emotionally connected to the ocean as such? Incredibly, incredibly. I mean, I I always look at people and, and think when they see a whale or a dolphin, everyone goes, ooh, ah, um, even nudie branches, which are these tiny little slug-like things which have the most incredible uh, colour patterns on them. They're, they're tiny, but they're so amazing. And everyone is so fascinated by this, but the connection of what gets slapped on your plate, there's a complete disconnect. And that disconnect has so many implications so part of my job is also creating the narratives so that people understand that you know what has got on our plate um, has come with a much much higher price than the few bucks that you paid for it and what kind of price are we paying for that fish on our plate wow um Hitting you with the big questions. (laughs) Yeah, but I think they're important. Uh, So what are we paying? So uh, let me just give you some examples. The human cost example. So at the moment um, in West Africa, in fact, in the UK, I know there's a lot of talk about migration. I've worked with refugees where I live in Switzerland. And I also had a preconception that most people were economic migrants. What I didn't realize is that much of that... Um, drive is driven by um, the Western world going down and taking away the natural resources of those countries. So I'll give you a specific example. I was brought up in West Africa um, and I used to watch the fishermen go out in their wooden canoes out into the Atlantic Ocean in the morning. They'd go fishing. Uh, There would be about two or three people paddling through the high waves to get out onto the ocean. They'd come back at about three or four, five at night. And uh, I would, as a kid even, I didn't like seeing fishes being killed. It just upset me a lot. But at the same time, they'd come with their nets and they'd, you know, uh, there was quite a a, a big haul. This is quite a few years ago, a few decades ago. Well, last century, let's put it that way. And uh, but then what happened was that, for example, in the EU, uh, subsidies have been given to the industrialized fishing fleets of of the EU, and at that time it also including um, England, but it's mainly uh, Spain, Portugal, and France. Um, and they go further and further afield. They're the, the oil that goes into their, their um, engines lets them go much further than they could possibly do so. They go fish off the coasts of these countries with just off the legal limits. So every country has a 200 nautical mile zone, which you're not meant to go over. But if you just fish there, it doesn't matter. Fishes don't know. They go backwards and forwards. And these are not your little canoes. These are, I'm sure you've seen these images of these huge nets that haul up. I mean, the equivalent of, you know, four double-decker buses full of fish. And it's not every day. That's every hour. So what happens is the fishermen go up, there are no fish there for them. It's ended up with them finding, actually the irony is they find more plastic in their nets than they find fish. They come back home, they realize that they can't sell anything. They end up giving normally legacy, they sell their canoes, and then they say, those boats come from the EU. Let's make our way up there because there must be jobs there because they're taking all of this. So there's that connection. So that's the human cost connection. And I've been in touch with refugees who have literally had perilous journeys to get to either uh, Switzerland, Germany, Sweden. So these are not these are not driven by, oh, let me go just find a better job. These are because I have nothing left to feed my family. And that's a, that's a heavy toll, I think, that we do, we, we tend to ignore. Um, I think in the other end is that uh, the other thing with subsidies and with the way that we regulate our fishing at the moment is that there is no, there's no, there's no limit. I could put today under the current framework, I could put 100,000 boats on the high seas and I could fish 
except for a few specific exceptions. Maybe it might be a certain species of fish. It might be a certain time of year, but that's it. And I could do this and just empty. Now, just, just picture that, that we have, well, China has the biggest fishing fleets, but we have um, other countries like South Korea, Japan, uh, the EU. Uh, uh, so we, we've got a lot of highly technical mechanized fishing. Now I'm a fish, okay? I'm living in the ocean with my family and uh, suddenly, I, you know, these big things come along and they start taking away all the members of my family. What happens? Let's look at it from their point of view. Suddenly, um, I, I got no one to mate with. So my genetic stock is gonna start going down. There's radar. I don't know where to hide because everywhere I hide, they find me. If I go too low, they'll pot bottom trawl. If I go medium uh, level in the ocean, they'll come with a different type of net. If I go on the top, they have these long, 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 long lines with hooks on them that will hook me and anyone else up with them. I basically have no chance of escape. And at the end of the day, uh, Sylvia Earle, um, who is, uh, we call her, her deep, yeah, she's her deepness, um, 86 years old, been um, campaigning for the oceans for uh, well over 60 years. Um, you know, she basically says, what's happening to that big empty that we're leaving behind? Because when you start, if you emptied your garden and you picked everything out of it, what are you going to get? Not even, you know, maybe even a few weedy weeds, but at the end of it, you're just left with something barren. And that's exactly what we're doing to the ocean right now. And there's a, yeah, I feel like the thing about running this podcast is you get hit by lots of areas which you didn't know about before. And that was kind of the aim of it. So, you know, in each episode, we focus on a new area with what's happening in prison systems or what's happening in, um, in this, you know, with fishing. And I think sometimes we don't hear the facts as succinctly as, as you've shared them there. Um, and so thank you for, for sharing that. I think I'm really feeling your connection to fish. So you mentioned about when you were younger that it, it used to hurt you to see them harmed. And I think to hear the story from the perspective of the fish itself is incredibly evocative. What does it mean for the ecosystem and I think it's worthwhile just describing what we mean by that, because we hear these big words, don't we, in environmentalism, systems change, ecosystems. But what, what does it mean for us after the great emptying? What does that look like for, for human life, for, for, for us on this planet? We're living at a time where the ocean has been doing us a huge service of absorbing um, up to 25% of our um, excess CO2. Um, that's kept us at the moment in what we call this Goldilocks moment where climate temperatures are fairly balanced, but you wouldn't say that in these last, uh, at least this year, um, I'm now, we're now starting to see the tipping scales. So what happens is with the ocean, when it absorbs that excess heat, it has an effect um, on the, the, the oxygen levels. Um, it, causes the, um, it causes ocean acidification because the, the pH starts to change. That has led to all our calcium carbonate creatures. And when I say that, I'm talking about what we all know, corals. Obviously, those are very obvious. You can talk about uh, crustaceans. But more importantly, and very, very worrying, there are some microorganisms that do us the bigger service in the ocean. Um, they do a migration every day from the bottom of the ocean to the top and they're little tiny crustaceans, uh, they're called copepods, and they go from the bottom of the ocean all the way up to the surface and back down. And that creates um, a mixing of the oxygen at the top of the surface of the ocean all the way to the bottom. Well, that's an engine. That's something that is super important for our oxygen production, for cooling, for mixing the strata within the ocean. You get rid of those and we are currently losing them at the rate of 1% per year. And that's been noted over the last 50 years. Um, 
we're, we're on course for a, a serious problem there because if we have an ocean that becomes fairly stagnant, that the upward-downward currents don't work, that's going to start affecting where our fish can go because they don't live on a horizontal plane like we do. We walk um, basically along a path, but we very rarely go up and down. Uh, fishes tend to go up, down, left, right, diagonally or whatever. But if you're going into a strata where there's no oxygen, you can't go there. So you can't go perhaps up to the surface. You're trapped below. Or if there's an area where there's this, this big blob where the um, water is too acid, um, you're not going to be able to survive there either. Or you may not, the things that you prey on may not be there. So all of these are your, your different um, different uh, elements in addition to so we've talked about ocean deoxygenation by the way deoxygenation is also caused by the massive um, uh, agro-industrial industry because all their fertilizers run off into streams into rivers and into the ocean they cause these algae blooms when these die they suck up all the oxygen so all the creatures that live there die and we've got i think i've last i heard it's um five areas, each one the size of Mexico, that is um, without oxygen. So these are deoxygenated areas, which again cause a problem. So now we're shifting habitats, fishes that lived in one place are no longer there. Fishermen can't find them, birds can't find them. Just uh, last week, a whole load of penguins in Antarctica were found dead, starved to death because the foods that they rely on are no longer were no longer there. So they've done their autopsies and they know that they starved because they had no food. Um, add to that uh, over-extraction, which has weakened stocks and taken away the, the food, food systems for others. And then let's add on top of that uh, chemical and marine plastic pollution. So those two are also causing effects in the water that either weaken the immune systems of marine creatures because they're ingesting plastics they're, um, or what we call persistent organic pollutants. So these are the things that will attach to floating bits of plastic or other elements in the sea. They ingest them into their body. These can cause um, effects because they leach into the flesh. So all of these things are I mean, as I just imagine, did you ever play that game where you put one hand on top, one potato, two potato? Yeah. Okay, just imagine that the whole classroom is putting their potatoes on and there's a fish at the bottom. That's the stress that those creatures are living with right now. And we are doing not a lot to stop this. There are some real glimmers of hope, and I will talk about those. But right now, today, we have not managed the ocean and are fishing in a way that is very long-term. And that is very frustrating and very sad because we are, we're going to end up with whatever we come out with is gonna be second or third best to what it used to be. And that's a real pity. Series two of the Warrior Women podcast is made in partnership with Zinc VC, a London-based venture capital firm. Zinc are currently looking for 70 talented individuals to participate in a 12-month venture program aimed at transforming the sectors most impacting the environment. This is a real opportunity for impact-driven individuals to access expert support and up to £250,000 in financial backing to build a venture from scratch. And brilliantly, over 50% of founders on their last venture builder were women. Go to zinc.vc for more information on how to apply. I want to talk to you about the disconnection piece. So like you said, we're going to touch on some of the glimmers of hope and no one gets on this podcast unless you're part of the change because I think it can be incredibly overwhelming, uh, especially for someone like myself who say doesn't, you know, work in this space to think, gosh, like, you know, what can I do? So it's really important that we showcase people who are driving change, who are in action so that we can support those initiatives and, and not just stay in the challenge. Although understanding that is, of course, an important part of this discussion today. I wanted to talk to you about, I wanted to take it down a level or two, I guess, to the uh, disconnection that we feel when we have that fish on the plate. 
And I wanted to share an example that I found out a lot about through your regular posting on LinkedIn, which is just so informative. So we, we understand that some of us eat fish, but we maybe don't connect enough with the fact that in some places around the world, we are, for example, finning shark fins um, just to have soup. And I wanted to talk to you about the kind of the human challenge there. What do you think we can do to get people to connect with those stories of creatures who have life and needs and not just the facts? It's a difficult one because I um, have always said, how can I get that ooh, ah, cutesy moment that people get when they go swim with a dolphin or they see a goldfish or whatever? How can we relate that? And I think there's um, a narrative story here. And there's a woman also on LinkedIn, uh, Christine Zanato, who is doing so much to try and reframe the framing of a fish as soulless, um, brainless, non-thinking, non-sentient objects. When in actual fact, and I can tell you this, uh, my son was uh, swimming, he was actually picking up ghost nets. And for those who don't know, ghost nets are the fishing nets that are discarded or lost at sea in the ocean. They're huge. And when they fall down, they float for a while in the water at mid-level. Whales get entangled in them or dolphins or turtles and they slowly strangle or the weight brings them down and they can't come up to breathe. Then they go on to the corals. And so many people are involved in cutting those out and bringing them up and off out of the ocean. Um, so that's what it goes like this. But along the way, when my son was doing this, there was a, there's a fish called a, um, a Goliath grouper. Now, a Goliath grouper is about the size of a, 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 a you know Saint Bernard dog. It's huge, <laughs> and they have character. They'd recognize him. He was called Trouble because every time the photographers were trying to take pictures of my son removing the ghost net, this fish would come in the middle and sort of, you know, be like, look at me. And then he'd snuggle up to my son and give him, you know, he wanted to be petted and played with. And I, you know, there are, there's a book written by um, a very, an interesting and, and fascinating book. Jonathan Balcom wrote a book called What a Fish Knows. And it will show you how fishes have uh, ability to calculate in very, very short uh, bursts. There's a fish that when it gets trapped by the tide in a tide pool, in the in the thing of a wave, in the, the breadth of a wave, he can work out every single puddle he has to jump to to get back in. And those puddles change constantly. Or you have fish that, that we know that they feel. We've now actually got proof that fishes feel pain. So imagine when you see these huge nets coming up. These are suffocated creatures that are just brought up out of the ocean without any real um, consideration for their for, for humane treatment you know i'm i i don't eat fish but i accept that some people will and i also accept it's a cultural thing in many cases but you know i think the big question is how much is too much you know that sushi shop at the corner of virtually every road for every piece of sushi we eat nine pieces end up discarded or killed unnecessarily and thrown back in the ocean. So those are the questions that we're trying to create that, that understanding that when you have a meal, at least respect that that creature really gave its life for you and that there was big sacrifice involved. When you eat it, it should be a matter of respect, not just, oh, that tastes delicious, next one. And that's how people eat. We eat like yeah, don't even think about it. But that was a life. And there were nine other lives that didn't even get to your plate for that, that kind of respect. And I'm doing that in inverted commas. So it's kind of trying to change the narrative that sharks, for example, shark infested waters. Well, actually, no, sharks live in water. Humans don't. Um, man eating shark. Sharks don't eat they don't go out and look for humans, but they're curious. And like a, a dog or a, a, a baby, they put things in their mouths to, to check. It's very rare that you'll get one that's coming out to hunt for, you know, um, Mr. Jim Smith, who happens to be surfing at, you know, whatever. It's just another another piece of food. That's it. You know, it, it really strikes me of 
this disconnection and you know this this need for connection and also a disconnection is such a, a theme that's going through every part of activism that I see whether it's um, us thinking about uh, well, naming naming things as resources alone, the narrative that comes around that, and, and actually, are these things resources, or are they are they there? Um, and we're we're lucky to to sort of partake in them, and we need to show value for them and, and respect for them, which obviously indigenous cultures know a lot more about that we could learn from. Um, how did you get into marine conservation work? I'm curious about that kind of initial story. You mentioned about West Africa, but I'm talking about when you started making it your work, I suppose. Um, it's an interesting thing because I've always, I grew up in West Africa. Um, my two sisters were much older than me. So therefore I spent my child very much alone and I was always pretty much a loner. And each uh, weekend we'd go out to the beach on the Atlantic coast with waves that are uh, pretty, I mean, they're pretty much on a par with Hawaii's big waves. Um, and I, I, to this day, I, I laugh, I tell my kids that I remember I'd go in the morning, I'd go swimming. My parents would be up, at, you know, but that was the 70s, 60s, everyone just partying and everything. I'd go off, get into the ocean, stay underwater, spend most of my time underwater. Um, and I'd come across all sorts of interesting things, shells and small fish. And if you dug your hand in, you'd, you'd see things. Sometimes you would see a shark. Sometimes you'd see a big fish, you know. Um, but what was interesting about it is I learned to observe not touch but observe and that got me and then obviously seeing the fishermen and the way that they treated fish which of course I'm, I can't sit there but I as a young kid and most young kids on this planet if they see any creature harmed at first they will show signs of distress mm -hmm. I don't think I ever but I think we grow out of it and my question is why why do we accept? Why do we accept that it's okay to hurt a creature? Now, I know in some cultures they will go and sit. There's a hunter who will sit by a tree, wait for a deer to come right up to him, stroke it or, or just sit there calmly with it and unfortunately then kill it. But there's a whole process about it that is done with um, consideration it's done with respect for the creature and that creature every part of it is used so but my personal thing is I, I could I don't want to do that I'm vegetarian that's fine but I respect that we do have to do these things but we do it with intent and we do it with respect and so when I was a kid um, I mean I'll, I'll tell you the funniest story I then lived in Saudi Arabia and I must have been about 18 or 19 so I was not a kid let me be clear and someone very kindly gave me we went to this beach the Red Sea beautiful and I was given two conch shells okay and it's about a two-hour drive to get to this place you drive through the desert to get back to uh, Jeddah which is the city that I lived in and I was with my parents at the time I was probably on holiday and uh, so I said oh thank you very much put it in the back of the car and I'm sitting there and about an hour into the drive, I suddenly find out that these conch shells are alive. They've come out of their shells, there's heat, and they're looking for water. And I literally burst into hysterics and I insisted, but I insisted that my parents drive back and take those shells back to the sea. I just, and you know, they were looking at me like, oh, you're so ridiculous, you're this and that. Well, that's pretty much my life these days. Um, but I was like, no, I'm, they have to, we cannot, I will not be responsible for their deaths. That that was, uh, that was probably uh, sealed my fate as, you know, crazy woman. That's just so amazing. Like, you know, again, we're, we're judging these kind of stories from our modern cognitive brains, aren't we? And we, 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 we talk about these things as woo-woo and silly and um, dramatic. When and it, the conversation we had before was talking about getting back to connection and you know experiencing things from a much deeper level, which is above you know the day-to-day -day, um, consumerist lifestyle, I guess that that we live in. And I think there's probably a story in every child around that. In fact, going back to the the you know do you eat fish or do you not eat fish? My um, 
my children who are eight and four, they're both vegetarian. And I watched a documentary, as many of us do, when I was pregnant with my second one. And I was about two weeks before giving birth and I watched a documentary and I'd never really thought about not eating meat, to be honest. I, I just didn't really think about it. And I watched this documentary, maybe it was the hormones, but immediately I just thought, I can't, I can't do this. I can't, I can't be, I can't be a being that births another being and eat things that also birth another being. It probably wasn't as cognitive as that, but that's the feeling that I had quite strongly. And what's been interesting about raising my daughters is the ability to choose is super interesting. So they're now older, so they're five and um, and eight. And I myself and my husband say to them, you know, if you want to eat meat, if you want to eat fish, that's absolutely fine. Um, and they choose not to. And I think by giving them the facts about, you know, where their food comes from and um, the implications of them eating it, they're quite armed to make their own decisions. And I think there's a job to be done really with just arming people with information about that, you know, that piece of sushi and um, the implications of eating it. But it's very hard to access the information, isn't it, for the average person. What we do access more easily is buy seven pieces of sushi for five ninety nine and get two free. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. There's a lot of great solutions that you also share and that you talk about, and you're a great lobbyist and campaigner. Um, and I'm often for the Warrior Women Network, other networks I know you point us to petitions that we all need to be signing. Um, where, where have these kind of notable collaborations culminated, I guess, for the Gallifrey Foundation and what issues have you been tackling through these collaborations that are sort of successful, I suppose? I tend to look, I call myself a sea snake. I go down in the weeds, in the, the sea grasses and see what the issue is. And then I look at the 30,000 foot. I look down and I go, okay, what can we do to move this needle? The reality is, I don't know if you saw the movie Sea Spiracy. Did you, did you manage to see that, Carla? Do you know what? I haven't watched it, and okay, and there's, I won't, I won't, I haven't watched it, and I'll tell you why. There's a very, there's a very strong reason for that. So my brother is a commercial fish farmer. He lives in Malta, mm -hmm. and we there are a lot of things that we don't agree on. We're very close, but we don't agree on a lot of things, and. Mm -hmm. For our relationship, I haven't been able to watch it. Interestingly, he has watched it. Oh, <laughs> um, interesting. It hasn't changed his behaviour. And I think that's that's something about the human psychology, right, is that if, you're, if your um, livelihood is linked to it, you can always find a way around it and dispel yes. those things in it. But no, I haven't watched it because it's kind of a personal situation for me. But I should, I should. I don't, I, I'll, I'll tell you, the bottom line is... There are things that are going on in the fishing industry. There are some respectable fishing people. I'm not going to, I cannot, I'm not going to taint the whole thing. But there are practices that are allowed to happen that are uh, really very wrong. And I believe that they are wrong, but it's legal. Some of these are legal. So the issue at the end of Sea Spiracy, and the reason why I mentioned it, is the only thing they could say is don't eat fish, which... Mm. I, of course, me and Sylvia Earle would go, yay. <laughs> but the reality is, and I'm pragmatic, it's not going to work. But the thing about Sea Spiracy, it touched on a lot of different issues like the um, uh, fishing labels. It touched on uh, plastic pollution and people who were working in that area. What it did not touch, because, of course, it's boring, is about jurisdiction and law. And unfortunately, for all of these things to be able to happen, the only way we can fix them is by fixing the laws that govern them. And right now, as I said earlier, it's, it's legal to put as many boats as you want on the high seas to fish. So I'll go back now to some examples of where I looked at these and went, okay, I'm not going to stop fishing. There's no way I can do it. And I'm not stupid enough to waste my time doing that. And in fact, I've always joked about the fact that I would never get into overfishing and campaigning because it's a bit like Harry Potter and the Dementors. I mean, it sucks your soul out of you. Mm. The more you learn about this, you think, oh my God, what the hell am I doing here? Go, 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 you know? Yeah. Anyway, but me being stupid, I just went, no, I cannot not do this. So... So we've done, we've got three things that we've worked on where we thought, okay, how can we move the needle? So the first thing is sharks. China has been doing a lot of work to try and dissuade its 
its its population that shark fin soup is not acceptable. The problem is that we have Asia, which is an emerging middle class. And let's step back to the cultural significance. Shark fin soup is symbolic of wealth, status, and it is served at auspicious occasions, like a wedding, like a banquet, like a business deal or whatever. So there is a lot attached to it. So what is happening is countries like Ecuador, um, Uruguay, um, and uh, basically anywhere else, Portugal, uh, Morocco, Spain, are all doing a hell of a lot of shark finning and fishing. So the first angle was, okay, if you're going to take a shark, if you're going to pull a shark out of the water, you can't slice off its fin without keeping the whole body. And the reason why we, we the um, organizations trying to protect sharks, said this is that if you keep the body of a shark, you take up a lot more space. The problem has been, and it's like everything, be careful what you ask for. The next thing that happened is, of course, now the sales of shark meat have gone up, which are rather suspect with all the things that are in them. Um, so what we realized is we've got an issue that is really quite difficult. So we went, first of all, I went to IATA, the International Air Transport Association. I said, would you pass a resolution not to carry, uh, get your members not to carry shark fins? So these are all the commercial airlines. And they kind of, um, they, well, they, they backed off. They didn't want to because they tried to do something with um, trophy hunting and carrying trophies on aircraft. And uh, at the time, it was the Trump administration and one of his prominent politicians who hunts intervened. And that was the end of that. So they just completely backed down. So we went, OK, what are we going to do about this? So we developed a website, um, uh, you know, a group of us, group of I call ourselves sharktivists, <laughs> which is basically where you can uh, tweet airlines um, and say you go to this website, which is called flywithoutfins.org. And when you click on it, you can say which airline, whichever airline you want, and you can immediately generate a tweet to thank them for not carrying fins or uh, to say you should, you know, when will you listen and update your plans to not carry fins. As a result of that, we've been doing that for about 18 months and we've had about 30 airlines so far commit to not carrying shark wow. fins. The last two were um, TAP Air Portugal and Kenya Airways have both, um, uh, Royal Air Maroc, sorry. Royal Air Maroc is very big. So this, these are huge. So what we're doing is we're working to try and get public opinion to create that pressure with specific petitions and lobbies to countries to say, please, will you uh, not carry shark fins? The reality is it's a very small amount because most shark fins are not carried by air, but it is symbolic and it gives um, uh, the general public a feeling of agency. And that is the problem is if you tell people about a problem and you don't give them something to do about it, um, it becomes very frustrating. Mm -hmm. So what we always do is connect person, problem to a solution. Another thing that we did is um, we've done another campaign, which is called uh, a typical me, WTF, where's the fish? The current legal framework, it's the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea, UNCLOS, um, at this moment does not, um, it's not fit for purpose for the current technology and efficiency that we have with fishing. Everything is super, I mean, you can track the last fish under the last reef, under the last rock. It doesn't work. If we're going to do that and not pay attention to things and ask everyone to self-regulate within their groups, and many of those groups are the people who are fishing, you're not going to get a very robust resolution to really protect. So, what we did is about uh, two or three years ago, we started looking at, uh, we, I, can't, I can't take on that, that um, the UN. The UN, uh, to change a UN law is basically, let's go to the bottom of Everest and start climbing from literally the ocean bottom. And I'm not going to live long enough and this would be done in a, a thousand years. So we said, no, let's try something different. So what we've started doing is looking at the national legislations. So we started last year, 
uh, with Argentina and we looked at their national constitutions. And they have something that says um, a right to sustainable living in their constitution. So we said, okay, so Argentina, you're not doing enough to protect your ocean that affords your people a right to sustainable living. And so we sued them with an injunction to stop fishing in the Supreme Court, because why not? And uh, what we did is we didn't just do that. We then said, and by the way, you're allowing illegal fishing from Spain and China in your waters. And you're allowing unsustainable fishing like bottom trawling. And by the way, um, you're not um, even affording this to your, your people so they can't get jobs. So what happened was that is the equivalent of basically dropping a, you, you know, when you were little, you took a big rock and you stood above a bridge and you drop mm. it in the water and you see what happens. Well, that happened. <laughs> so we ended up with a number of interesting um, reactions and I'll, I'll quickly tell you what they were. So the first is my lawyer in Argentina was immediately approached the next day by the Chinese to consult for their f a firm. The you know, next it was basically day. The next day. Wow. And I started receiving um, emails. Apparently, I was a seller of squid because this is what the Chinese are doing mainly around South America. It's major squid fishing. And so I apparently uh, started getting emails about 10 or 15 a day from Chinese, Taiwanese, Japanese. Apparently, I was a seller of them. They, they put my name on the list. So they were asking, you know, we want to buy X amounts of whatever. And I, I was like, what? You know, my, my, my name did not appear anywhere on these documents. So just to let you know, they're basically saying we're watching you. The next thing that happened is that the Argentinian Navy, who we had accused of not patrolling their waters, because we basically got about only five cases of them arresting illegal activity in the last 10 years, and we said, sorry, that's not good enough. And they were like, well, of course it is, you know, and we were going, I'm sorry, we've got documented cases because now we have satellites and we can see when uh, fishing boats cross into national waters and they should be there. If we can see it, why can't they and why can't they preemptively attack? Um, the third thing was the Spanish came to us and said, you know, why um, you've accused us of all these things. And we said, yeah. We have, and by the way, here's all the documentation of all your incursions into Argentina, all your unsustainable practices like bottom trawling. Oh, and whilst we're at it, you're fishing off West Africa and you're taking all the fish away from them. And whilst you're at it, you're also in the Maldives and the Seychelles and you're using an unsustainable fishing practice that is undermining their sustainable tuna practices. So we'd like to see that change. Then the next thing that happened is there were elections in Argentina last year and our um, case was referred to by the opposition to showcase the uh, sitting government that they were not doing enough. Um, so basically what I'm trying to say is that what we did, the aim of this action is to change the current paradigms of dialogue and engagement. And so what has happened is we got the Argentine government listening to us. They're starting to try because we said, you know, they, of course they want to do business with China. That's I, we, I cannot stop. You know, we're not going to stop everyone trading. However, what we want to do is make sure they don't run away with the whole car keys of the house, the Porsche, the you know, everything that you own. You need to manage that and you need to manage it sustainably so that you have something left over. So what we're doing is learning how to. Um, calibrate all of these details um, to a successful action. And that is something that we are cascading in other South American countries. Oh, my God. I just feel so like <laughs> this is probably like not a professional podcast host response, but I do feel so amazed by the people that I get to meet and the work that they're doing and it's almost like new heroes it's kind of like you know if you sat on Instagram for a day you'd think that we all 
everything's happening is because of Harry Styles or because of, you know, these celebrities and then the worlds that I exist in now, I just meet these phenomenal people. And the question that always kind of comes back to me is just the makeup of the person. It's interestingly in series one, you know, it was six interviews with uh, self-identifying pioneering women who are driving change. And this kind of, this consistent theme came up, which was, the work is really hard. I mean, what you're talking about, it's not like it's not like you're saying, and then I go to Subway and I make the sandwiches and I come home. You know, you're talking about power mapping, lobbying. We're talking about just really, really big pieces of work, which are incredibly hard to do and I'm sure exhausting. Um, and and why would you choose to do that? You know, why? And it always comes down to the person, right? You know, the, there's something in the makeup of this and, and it's been hard to describe for a while what, a, what do we mean by warrior women? And I think increasingly it's just becoming people who, the definition is becoming people who just are bloody minded, really. <laughs> like just, yes. just like, you know, just, just and, and I uh, List, I went to this incredible event in Somerset last week with people who are leading change, but really diverse people. Like we're talking about sculptors and um, you know people who are whittling words, just like amazing people, but also you know government people in government. And uh, someone stood up and said, "You know, I used to be difficult, but now I'm impossible." And I just love that. <laughs> and I think that's kind of how I think we're people like yourself are becoming. You start from a place of being difficult, and then you become impossible. You just kind of keep going, but. We've spoken about this before personally, but I think for our listeners, how what have been the personal challenges for you? Like how have you how have you kept going? Because a lot of this work is underfunded, right? It's an act I know you've you know, I hope you don't mind me saying that you've kind kind of come close to burnout a couple of times and you've had to t- mm-hmm. we've had those emails from Antoinette which say Yes I am in Hawaii. <laughs> Please do not <laughs> contact me because I you know what what you know talk to me about the person behind the work what's that been like for you so there are so first of all i've always laughed i said i have never worked so hard for nothing in my life uh so all the work that we do is completely um based on our own funding my husband has a business and it we can only go as far as that and that is Uh, an advantage and a disadvantage. And the advantage is that we can say what we like. We are not beholden to anyone's agenda. And that has made enemies of us, not only um, of the, you know, um, fossil fuel industry or whatever, but also sometimes the NGOs, because they don't like us calling out some of the nasty things there. But we get to be, um, we get to be pretty candid because sometimes we have to mention elephants in the room. I don't have to do it nastily, but there are facts that are involved in this whole industry as well, which are difficult. And I appreciate where people come from. But what it's done for us is on the one side, um, it's been, um, that is liberating. On the other side, I'll tell you the WTF, the day that I was about to sign and we were gonna go submit to the Supreme Court, I was like, everyone I spoke to, okay, I'll just tell you that the story is, no one would touch us, no one. Because they said, we work with the government, we can't afford to uh, mess up our relationships with them. If they see that we're suing them, then we're not gonna get the ins. No one would touch us, no one would fund us. And I remember thinking, oh my God. And I really felt so alone and so nervous. I mean, I was crying. I remember sitting in the bathroom crying and I just, on the TV was the movie about Ruth Bader Ginsburg Mm. and the day that she's gonna go into court to basically uh, stand up for, you know, uh, on the basis of sex uh, for, for women. And I remember looking at it going, damn it, if she can do it, I bloody well can. And that was when I said, I am so out of my comfort zone, but I have to do this because if not me, who? And, and so therefore now on the other side of this, I can sit there and say, this is entirely our work alone, not, not other groups or whatever, because no one would touch us. Now they're becoming more interested because they're seeing change and reaction 
But sometimes you just have to be, what, what is it, the light bulb amongst all the candles. And sometimes you may end up going to the guillotine whilst they all watch. You've mentioned the word about alone. And I, I don't, this isn't, I'm not a trained therapist. So, you know, I don't want to go too deep into this. But you mentioned about being a loner as a child. And you talked about finding your own way. And I think a lot of people in activism, it's done as communities, right? It's done as groups. Mm. And it does sound to me that you do seem quite comfortable with going it alone. Is that fair to say? Um, I'm not comfortable going alone, but if I have to, I will, because I have an incredible car, uh, a conviction. Yeah. And when I looked at this, it was kind of like, this has to be done. It's the only way that I could see this being done. I, I have more courage now because I've got, I've got a proof of concept mm -hmm. and that proof of concept is working. Oh, amazing. And then just as we round up today, who else is doing really interesting work in this space um, that we should follow and that we should support? Okay, so in the UK, um, definitely surface against sewage, because if we don't deal with the chemical pollution that's going on in our wastewater, you know, most of the sewage at the moment in the UK is allowed to go untreated. Blue Marine Foundation are also based in the UK. That was the person who, well, Charles Clover, who wrote a book called The End of the Line. Um, that was a book that changed my life. And if you want to understand where there are no places for fishes to hide, that's your book. Another uh, group that's doing a lot of work in the UK is the Galapagos Conservation Trust. Uh, we've worked with them on our work for Ecuador and the Galapagos. Then Mission Blue. Uh, Sylvia Earle Foundation. Yes, she's she's 86 amazing. years old. She insists still on scuba diving. And she is basically has developed something called Hope Spots. And so I'll just give you a quick um, background to that. So most people are protected. That's called a marine protected area where you get a government scientific organization to designate an area. And in theory, no one should touch it. The reality is very different, but that's where we'd like to go when no one touches it. So that's that rewilding really message. Hope spots are driven by grassroots organizations. So if someone lives along a coast or knows an area of the sea or a small island that they think is special and precious, there is a whole system to get that started as a protection but what she will do is use her social channels and the power of of her branding to push that forward to eventually become a marine protected area these are long processes but at least it allows um, you and i to have agency if we feel strong enough and have that conviction that we really we really want to protect something and we see a value in it Thank you so much. There's a lot of amazing stories and information and personal truths there. Thank you, Antoinette. Thank you. Thank you so much for this. I really enjoyed it and um, for this lovely in-depth conversation. I'm Carla. You've been listening to Warrior Women, the podcast by the Warrior Women Network, brought to you by Zinc VC and produced by Birdline Media.